Amen. And it's great to see you today. Wasn't worship great? Well, we're moving our way through the book of Matthew, and it's winding down quickly. We saw last week in Matthew chapter 21, it started the final week of Jesus' life on that Palm Sunday event. And we talked about how misunderstood Jesus was, and you could see it was getting to him. You know, he was getting kind of frustrated that his enemies misunderstood him, his friends misunderstood him and how after spending years teaching and they still didn't get it and it was just sad to think that after everything that he had done that he was still basically isolated in terms of understanding what was about to happen as he was going to go and die for the sins of the world. As we come to chapter 22 we see Jesus really his last ditch effort to give an invitation to people. Chapter 22 starts with a strong invitation to come to God through Jesus and receive forgiveness. Now, in typical Jesus fashion, he didn't just lay it out, here are the four spiritual laws, or play just as I am softly while people come forward and the counselors are waiting. Jesus did everything through stories because that's the way that you really penetrate to someone's heart. Stories touch us in a way that laying out cold, hard facts just can never do. Jesus understood that. So in chapter 22, he begins with a parable that you'll see the point of it becomes kind of obvious, but it's an interesting story in a lot of respects. So let's just look through it. It says... Jesus spoke to them again by parables and said, verse 2, The kingdom of heaven, or the way things happen with God, is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. So he says, it's like a royal wedding. And he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. Now, all you realize this is a story. Because if there's a royal wedding and you get a personal invitation, you're probably coming. You, you may complain about it. You may like, not want to come, but generally you're going to come. So you can tell he's telling a story, a made-up story. So some of the people are just like, no thanks, and just no offense, just not coming. So again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready, come to the wedding. Now imagine getting an invitation to a wedding and you're like, I hate weddings, but they're having filet mignon and this, or, you know, an in and out cart or whatever. So he's trying to get people to come by offering them particular food. I mean, how strange is that? That you have to entice people by sharing the menu with them. But they still, they, they made light of it. They're like, yeah, whatever, I can get food anywhere. And they went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. These people were busy. And they were just like, I'm too busy to come. And the rest, some of them, seized his servants 
treated them spitefully and killed them. Some people were so hostile. How dare you invite me to a royal wedding? Kill the people who are just trying to extend the invitation to you. This is where you realize he's not talking about weddings. He's talking about the way that people respond to messengers from God. We saw it a little bit in chapter 21, the hostility. So here he is saying, the invitations go out. You can have an opportunity to participate in everything that God wants to do for you. And in the same way, when you have invitations to accept Jesus, to let him forgive your sins, let him die for you and give you a new life, there are some people who just go, nah, not interested. That's fine. There are other people who say, I'm just too busy. But then there are some people who like hate the idea of being invited and they beat up the people who invite them. See, he's describing the scenario of what has happened as God, through Jesus, has been extending his love and forgiveness. There are some people who just, that's not my thing. There are other people who would say, I'm too busy. There are some people that hate being asked. Now, this is true to this day. When people hear the good news that God loves you, that Jesus died for you, that you can be forgiven. There are some people, and I don't blame them, they're just like, eh, I'm not buying it. There are other people who go, maybe when I get older, right now, I'm pretty busy. I'm afraid that he's going to mess up my business or something, my relationship, so maybe later. And then there are some people who are totally hostile to the fact that God loves them. It's irrational beyond your imagination That God loving you, even if you don't believe in a God, what are you mad about? How can you be mad at something that doesn't exist? And there are people today who are just completely hostile to the notion of a God. They hate God. How can you hate an imaginary person? They hate people who follow God because they follow God. I I never understand these people who, like, I understand somebody being an atheist. But I don't understand being an atheist and devoting your life to writing books against God. Like, why do you care if somebody believes in God or not, even if you think it's an imaginary? You can't be mad at an imaginary person. See, I personally, and sorry if there's some kids listening who this messes you up for life, but I don't actually believe that there's a Santa Claus who comes down your chimney on Christmas Eve. I'm not offended. I'm not writing books against Santa. I'm not like, turn the letters around, it spells Satan. No, that's just nuts. I just, eventually, the kids figure it out. I know my grandkids, uh, you know, they kind of believed, kind of didn't. I, I think they're a little too smart to buy it, but they were going along with it until last year when um, Will decided to remodel their house and he took out the fireplace. And the kids are like, how's Santa going to get in on Christmas Eve? And he goes, oh, he comes in through the toilet. <laughs> they really, when somebody says that, they really don't believe it. But, so again, Jesus is like, there are all these different responses to the fact that I'm telling you that God loves you, that you can have a different life. And so he, he goes on and And as he tells the story, then he says, the servants, 
went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. So he says, just go out and get anybody. Get the people who are living along the freeways. Get the people who are just, they're just plain hungry. They're looking for a free meal. Get anybody who's out there and tell them they can come to the feast, to the wedding. And Jesus is referencing, you know, before he's, at first you go to the most important people, the, the Jewish religious leaders. Jesus went to them when he was 12 years old. He's in the temple talking to the theologians. Eventually they just decided, some of them got so mad they wanted to kill him. Some of them just kind of blew it off and thought nothing of it. So then who ends up following Jesus? His critics made it clear. He hangs out with sinners. He hung out with reformed prostitutes and IRS agents and other scum of the earth. And it's like, okay, that's who comes. And so again, Jesus is telling the story. It was packed out. But in verse 11, when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. You didn't dress correctly. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. He didn't know what to say. So the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Not a very seeker-friendly invitation. but And, and why is the master so upset? Because the guy didn't dress up for the wedding. Well, actually, in their culture, this guy would have actually dressed up. And to come to a wedding, you were supposed to dress down. In fact, when they would invite you to the wedding, they would give you a very simple robe that was a, a beige-ish kind of color so that that way nobody was dressed nicer than the bride and groom. It made, it's like today, you wouldn't, a woman wouldn't go to a wedding wearing a really fancy white dress because it's like, you might wear it better than the bride. So you kind of dress down a little bit, but what they would, and it, it must have made interesting wedding photos, but everybody's dressed alike except the bride and groom. They really stand out. Now, Jesus in the story is clearly talking about something that he mentions, and Paul talks about it quite a bit, in terms of receiving forgiveness of sins as being you putting on as an outfit, you being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Him giving you his righteousness, and you are coming wearing that. So the guy that shows up wearing his own outfit is somebody who tries to come to God, but he's not doing it by receiving the gift of salvation. He's doing it by what he has put together. He thinks he can do it better than God. So rather than accepting God's righteousness, he comes in wearing his own righteousness, and Jesus makes it clear that doesn't cut it. So he lays out this invitation, and then finally in verse 14, he closes it by saying, For many are called, but few are chosen. Now clearly what he's saying is a whole lot more people are invited than what actually make it. Not everyone who could go to the marriage supper of the Lamb, who could go to heaven, actually make it. 
everyone's invited. You know, we, you know in uh, Isaiah 53, he says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He isn't willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So he invites everyone. If you don't understand this, God has invited you to receive the righteousness of Jesus and the opportunity to live forever in heaven with him. So what does it mean? Many are called, but few are chosen. Because clearly the point of the, of the parable is a lot of people have a chance, but they don't make it. So what, why does he say many are called, but few are chosen? Um, without going deeply into a discussion of what's called Calvinism, Calvinism is a, is a brand of Christianity, and there are good people who, who follow Calvinism. They're wrong. But, you know... <laughs> It's the idea that only certain people are actually elect. They're actually chosen. That God looks before time began, God decided who would be saved, and that's who makes it into the feast. And so for a Cal- and so if you don't accept Jesus, well, you just weren't chosen. If you do accept Jesus, well, you were chosen. But it was ultimately God that decided who would come and who doesn't. Now, That doesn't fit with this story at all. Clearly, the problem with the people who aren't there is that they chose to reject the invitation. So what does it mean many are called but few are chosen? That word chosen is also in a lot of places is translated as elect. And so people, you know, say, well, it just means if you you didn't choose him, he didn't choose you, you're not elect. But the word that's used there that's translated elect chosen, or that's translated in other places, elect, um, is the word eklektos in the Greek. It's the word that we transliterate into eclectic. If you say that there is an eclectic group of people, or if you say there's an eclectic group of, you know, uh, items on a shelf, eclectic means that it's an interesting combination of an assortment of different types and ways of doing things. And so you could look at, you know, any room full of people almost and say, well, this is an eclectic bunch. We're very different. There are people here with criminal records. Don't, I don't, don't worry, I don't know if you have one or not. But, um, you know, there are people here who are rich. There are people here who are poor. It's an eclectic bunch. See, that's what he's saying. It's like... Clearly, the point of the parable is you need to respond to the invitation to receive what God wants to do for you through his son, Jesus. So how do you deal with the chosen thing? Well, the word eklektos, if you look throughout the New Testament, if you think that it means that God picked you over others, which Calvinism, again, it believes that only certain people were chosen. So if, you you know... Like, God created most people with his intention to send them to hell, because that would make him look good. That's what Calvinism teaches. And again, I, I used to be a Calvinist, so I know something about it. I'm not a Calvinist, because ultimately I just couldn't handle the idea that God 
would create most people so that he could burn them to make him look better. That just doesn't sound like God to me. But take this word eclectos. The angels are said to be the eclectos angels. Now, in what way were the angels selected that way? Randomly by the will of God. Can't imagine. But I'll give you one even better. Jesus is called the elect son of God. Now, in what way was Jesus selected, if you want to use it that way? Clearly, it doesn't fit. So, in this case, what Jesus is trying to do is say, the biggest question that you will ever have to answer in your life, what are you going to do with the offer of salvation, with the author of forgiveness? And that's his point. And that's what he was trying to do with his life. He came to present that opportunity and that message. Now, they were like, this is awkward. We don't know what we're supposed to do. So they chimed in with a few distractions, really. And the first one in verse 15, the Pharisees were thinking, we got to trip him up. So they got some of their disciples with a group of Herodians. Now, the Pharisees would have nothing to do with Herodians. Herodians were Jewish, you know, by birth, but they were totally Romans. They loved the Roman Empire. They loved the emperor. You know, so, so the Herodians got together with some of the Pharisees who were pumping them, and they came to Jesus, and they thought, we're going to trap him. So first they buttered him up. Always be suspicious when people start talking to you and saying, you know, we know that you're true, you're honest, you teach the way of God in truth, you don't care about anybody, you don't regard the person of men. I know you don't care what anybody thinks of you. And then, (laughs) so tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? What does that have to do with anything? They ask him a political question. Because they thought, if he said, I mean, here, look who he's talking to. If he says, yes, we we have a patriotic duty to support the Roman government, then the Jews who couldn't stand the Roman government would say, You can't possibly be Messiah. We are hoping that you ascend to a throne to throw Rome out. So if he says, yes, you know, we're all for Rome, then he loses half the people. But on the other hand, if he says, no, I'm a tax protester, I'm not going to pay anything, I'm anti-government, then it sets him up to be in trouble with the Romans. So they thought they had him. But Jesus said, um, you got a coin? And he took the coin. He called them hypocrites, first of all. He said, show me the money, tax money. So they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, it's Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard that, they went, whoa. And they left. So they tried to bait him with a political question. Are you for Rome or are you not? And look how he deflects it by saying, you get a coin, fine. 
Do what you need to do for the Romans, but I ask you this. With everything that God owns, with everything that belongs to him, everything other than your stupid coin, are you giving that to God? See, he's still hammering home his invitation. You need to accept what God is doing for you, so fine, pay your taxes. But you don't live your life for, for politics. Your life is all about what you do with what belongs to God, and God made you. And so you need to get your life aligned with God and not get distracted by a question like this. So they're like, okay, we can't get him on the political thing. That was pretty clever. So then the Sadducees came. And the Sadducees were people who were the liberals of the day. They didn't really believe in much of anything, but they still hung on to Judaism kind of in a cultural way. And kind of like a lot of you know, Christians today that don't believe Jesus rose from the dead or anything, but they still like the idea of going to church and enjoying the architecture. So the Sadducees came to him with a question that they thought would trip him up. And it was really a family question because, you know, what they said to him, they, post, they postulated a, a hypothetical and they said, okay, you know, in the, in the Mosaic law, there's a law that says, it's the Leverett law that says, if a guy gets married and he dies before they have a kid, and his family is cut off, which family to them was everything. It was how they survived. It was how they propagated everything about who they were. So he goes, you know, in the law, it says that if that guy dies, then his brother would marry his wife, and their first kid, they would actually name after their dead brother, and then, then they could have their own kids after that, but that kid is his brother's kid, which was a pretty nice Sentimental thing, I suppose. But they go, so this happened. Then the second guy dies before he has a kid. So his third brother comes and marries this girl. And then he dies. And then the fourth, how in the world do you get to seven times without somebody calling Dateline and finding out what's this chick doing that's killing off all these husbands? But that's a sidelight. So they tell this ridiculous story and then they say to Jesus, so, who's she married to when she gets to heaven? And, you know, of course, a nonsensical, a nonsensical question. But Jesus said, you got it all wrong. You're mistaken. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So he said, you're trying to bait me with a talk about, you know, marriage and family. Because certainly the Jews valued propagating and passing down their heritage. And so... That's something that you think is going to distract me. But you can focus on the family all you want. When we get to heaven, there are no families. Everybody is one part of the family of God. So I'm talking about your eternity. You're talking about something that is very temporary. And then he goes, but by the way, you believe the Bible. 
God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He didn't say, I was, but do you know when he said that, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were already dead. So God is the God of the living, and he is the I am. And so they went, busted. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really know how the whole family thing would work in heaven. Thanks for clarifying that. And yeah, I don't believe in life after death, but it's true. God said that he is still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even after they're gone. So they decided, okay, we didn't get anywhere. The, the multitudes were astonished at his teaching. And when the Pharisees heard that, it was like tag team, and they got together and they got a lawyer, or a theologian, really, um, in verse 35, and asked him a question. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? They liked having these discussions because the theologians, their whole thing was about the technicalities of religion. The Old Testament law, the Levitical law, incredibly complex. And figuring out how to apply the law in today's situation was extra challenging because they're living under Roman law, but they have Jewish law, and it's really a touchy area. And so they were asking him, what is, which commandment is the most important? Again, it's just to change the subject. And Jesus said to them, you know, as he laid it out, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. First and great commandment is this, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Notice, they're asking him a religious question. He is bringing them back to their connection with God. He is saying, everything that the law is saying is, you love God, and you love your neighbor out of your love for God. So quit trying to trip me up with silly rules and arguments about technicalities of the law. The fact is, you don't know God, you don't love God, and you love studying about his rules. Now, with all of these distractions, Jesus gives the invitation that they had an opportunity to receive the invitation to the marriage, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so forgiveness is offered to them, grace is offered to them, and they try to change the subject by first turning it to politics, and then turning it to family, and then finally turning it to religious rules. People can use almost any excuse to avoid the fact that ultimately it's about your relationship to God. That's what matters. And to this day, people get distracted with politics. People get distracted with family. People get distracted with religion and rules and law and behavior. And he says, those aren't the point. Now I hear it. I hear one pastor who repeatedly says, God established three, you know, systems, basically. He ordained three institutions. The government, the family, and the church. Well, that's blatantly untrue. For one thing, 
by saying, we need to be involved in government because God established government. Are you serious? Did you ever go to school at all? There were governments long before. If you take Israel as being a government, which is really stretching the point, Egypt had government way before they did. China had government way before they did. India had government way before. God did not invent government. He isn't you know, amazed by it. He doesn't want us to obsess on it. When God looks at government or politics, he goes, pay your taxes and spend your life doing things that are more important than dabbling with government. But the same thing goes for family. You can just go, oh, family is so important. Family is important. It's a blessing. We're thankful. Family is a beautiful picture of the love that God has for us. But ultimately, family is not what God is all about either. When two people get married and they go, I'm going to be your bride forever. No, you're not. Someday you'll be glad that you're not. But (laughs) it's like, no, it's temporary. All you have to do, if you want to focus on the family, ask yourself, how come Jesus, you know, wasn't married and didn't have kids? How come Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, was single? And he talked about it. He may have been married before, but we don't read about the settlement or anything like that. We know Peter and John, who wrote books of the Bible, were married. But we don't know anything about their wives. We don't know anything about their kids. God wasn't seeing the family as being the ultimate. Family is a blessing. I mean, I would put it somewhere above baseball, but... It's still temporary. It really is. We have to understand it or it becomes a distraction. There are so many people who allow family to pull them away from God, ironically. And so he's just going, no, I'm not buying that. And even religion, even trying to be as good as you can be to make sure that you never miss church, to make sure that you religiously follow the rules and do what you're supposed to do, That's what you need to do is love God and love people. And that should drive everything in your life. The other stuff, like people that want to fight about Calvinism, it's like, what a waste of time. And I've certainly wasted enough time talking to people about it. And yet, it doesn't accomplish anything. That doesn't have anything to do with loving God or loving my neighbor. It's a distraction. And it was in these cases as well. And Jesus says, look, here's the invitation. This is what it is. And then finally, in the end of the chapter, he says, so who do you think the Messiah is? In verse 42, who do you think the Christ is? Whose son is he? And they said, oh, he's the son of David. Well, Jesus, by the way, was a son of David. He was a descendant of King David. So if Messiah is the son of David, he certainly qualifies. On his mother's side, he was biologically a descendant of David. On his stepfather's side, he was legally a descendant of David as well. So he's a son of David. But rather than jump, well, then I could be, I might be, he takes it further. He says, how then does David, in the Spirit, under the inspiration of the Spirit, call him Lord, saying, And quoting from the Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? 
He goes, you say you believe in Messiah, but you are rejecting God's son, who also happens to be God. Now, this would certainly infuriate them, but at first, nobody could say anything, because they're like, yeah, he's kind of right. Nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. It ended the discussion. But sadly, it really also ended the opportunity for the large groups of people who were listening to him to understand the powerful truth that God loves you, that he sent his son, that if you will receive the invitation, you can be forgiven, and if you will clothe yourself in the righteousness of Jesus, you can live forever. Just accept the invitation. And after all these distractions, and then he makes it very clear, oh, and by the way, Basically, he says, I'm the Messiah, and I'm the Lord. And they're like, whoa, that was, that was crazy, that was heavy. People remembered this, it's why it got recorded in Matthew. So it certainly made an impression, all of this did. But it brings us to today, it brings us to now. Do you understand, we waste our time when we're haggling about government or focusing on well, everything family, it's all about family, or trying to be good and religious and arguing about whether a Christian should do this or should do that, when really what we need to understand is, I need help. I need forgiveness. And here is the invitation. Here is Jesus personally reaching out to each one of us and saying, It's a gift. If you will put on my grace, if you will receive my sacrifice, you'll be forgiven. You'll be in heaven forever. You will be, you won't worry about family. You'll be a part of my family. And ultimately, it's the place where I rule in love and grace and kindness. It's a place where you will experience love like you could never experience it on this earth. So, It kind of leaves us with two aspects. First of all, have you responded to the invitation? I'm not talking about getting emotional about something and like, yeah, I'll come forward. I'm talking about, have you you really decided that your only hope is to receive his righteousness? That Jesus loves you? died for you, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. How have you responded to that invitation? And have you gotten distracted about doing the right thing and voting right and doing all that? Or are you understanding all that matters as I am right with God through Jesus? But there's a second aspect of the question because Jesus left us here. And after I receive the invitation to go to the wedding, now I have the privilege of being the servants who go out and pass out the invitations, who go into the highways and byways, who go other places, who go all over the place, and tell people, hey, there's going to be a celebration, and you're invited. And it's free. You just have to put on this simple outfit of the righteousness of Jesus. See, after you accepted your invitation, 
The only reason you're still alive is because you are the one that he wants to use as his messenger to let other people know that he loves them, that he wants to invite them to come to the feast as well. What a privilege it is. Now, as you invite people, you'll find the same response that Jesus talked about. There are some people who are just going to go, nah. There are other people who are going to go, I don't have time, I'm busy. There are other people who are going to hate you for even suggesting such a thing that God might love them. They may kill you, and then you show up at the wedding, it's cool. But for every one of us, I have to ask, first of all, have I responded to the invitation? And secondly, am I passing that invitation on to others? It's vitally important. It's what he has left us with, a great responsibility for us to take and a great privilege for us to exercise. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for taking the time to, I mean, you could have just said this, but you told it so beautifully and graphically in a story that we can't forget. That when we think of wedding clothes, when we think of invitations, when we think of people who come and others who won't, this story just jumps into our minds. And what a beautiful truth that you have invited us. Oh, maybe we were the best and the brightest. Most of us, we got our invitation when the world was kicking us around pretty good and we were spiraling and and our lives were out of control and you found us there on the highways and byways and we listened to the invitation. But here we are. Those who are assembled waiting for the day when we all celebrate together looking forward to that day where your grace is all that it takes for us. But Lord, I pray too that we wouldn't forget where we came from. That we wouldn't forget that somebody who had been forgiven by you shared the story with us, gave us the invitation. So may we live our lives looking for opportunities, not obsessing, not trying to push and, and throttle and strangle people to make them come. Just sh- simply sharing that you love them and that you want to receive them and that they can be forgiven. Lord, help us to carry that message. Loving people, since we love you. So Lord, please teach us. And if there's somebody here today, Lord, who has never accepted you, I pray that they would get the clarity of your invitation, not responding to my invitation, but to yours. They can be forgiven. Their life can start over, can be clean. Help them to know this is the most real thing that they could ever hear, is the invitation to a celebration that you want them to participate in it desperately. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.